We live in a world surrounded by people seeking attention, clamoring for accolades and approval. Folks will do anything they can to get noticed. Children can have their 15 minutes of fame and make more of an income than you and I just for having a popular social media account. Trendy dances, unboxing videos, makeup tutorials. Get a loyal enough following and it doesn't matter the content. If your friends are watching it, you have to as well or risk not knowing the latest and greatest thing. Social media has made it infinitely easier to get noticed. It's not a matter of who will see what you've done, but more so by how many people. We live in a time where the number one commodity is things like likes and follows and hearts. Craving attention is nothing new. It's just easier to attain nowadays. The time it takes to convert a thought or idea that pops into your brain onto a public social media platform is seconds. Everyone has a stage now. It's just a matter of how many people are listening. There are, of course, people who just want to wake up and do their jobs and quietly live their lives, but they're becoming more and more rare with each passing day. Here's what I'm eating. Here's how good I lip sync. Here's where I'm vacationing. Practically nothing is private anymore. There have been plenty of times where people have known something that's going on in my life before I have. Sometimes those who try to avoid the spotlight get pulled into it regardless. Everyone has a camera in their pocket. Almost any event that happens is being recorded by someone, usually someone looking to benefit from it. You might just be a nice person who likes to help old ladies cross the street, but now some famous YouTuber took video of it, posted it with a catchy song playing underneath it, added heart eye emojis, and now you're an internet star without even knowing it or seeing any of that advertising money they're making. The following story is an example of one of those people, a man in this case, who became a key figure in the world of unidentified objects and aliens. And he was just doing his job one night when everything changed for him. Suddenly, he was a man wanted by scientists and the media, and all he wanted was to go back to work and to be left alone. If it happened today, distancing himself from the event would have been nearly impossible and chances are someone would have gotten it on video and he'd be world famous before he'd been able to finish his breakfast the next day. The lucky part, I suppose, is that if it happened today, it would be old news by tomorrow. Episode 58, The Val Johnson Incident. I don't often discuss visitors from another planet on this podcast, but if I'm being honest with you, I'll admit that I am someone who believes that we are not alone in this great big universe. I wouldn't say that I'm a believer exactly. I just wouldn't be surprised to learn that there is life out there somewhere. I will also admit that I believe I've witnessed both a ghost and a UFO. The ghost came when I was six and the UFO was around the time I was 13. As Mo Willems' pigeon character would say, I'm a curious bird. I like to keep my eyes peeled and my mind open to things that are unexplainable. As you've no doubt learned from listening to this podcast, I like a little mystery in my life. Many UFOologists consider the Val Johnson incident to be in the top ten of possible alien encounters. After stumbling onto Johnson's transcripted interview that occurred a few weeks after the incident took place, I thought it would be fun to read it to you in its entirety. We will learn about the night together through his own eyes. 
September 16, 1979. This is Deputy Sheriff Val Johnson. I report in connection with an incident which happened August 27, 1979 at approximately 1.40 a.m. Western section of Marshall County, approximately 10 miles west of Stephen, Minnesota. This officer was on routine patrol, westbound down Marshall County Road 5. He got to the intersection of 5 and Minnesota State 220. When I looked down South 220 to check for traffic, I noticed a very bright, brilliant light, 8 to 12 inches in diameter, 3 to 4 feet off the ground. The edges were very defined. I thought perhaps at first that it could be an aircraft in trouble, as it appeared to be a landing light from an aircraft. I proceeded south on 220. I proceeded about a mile and three-tenths, or a mile and four-tenths, when the light intercepted my vehicle, causing damage to a headlight, putting a dent in the hood, breaking the windshield, and bending antennas on top of the vehicle. At this point, at the interception of the light, I was rendered either unconscious, neutralized, or unknowing, for a period of approximately 39 minutes. From the point of intersection, my police vehicle proceeded south in a straight line, 854 feet, at which point the brakes were engaged by forces unknown to myself, as I do not remember doing this, and I left about approximately 99 feet of black marks on the highway before coming to rest sideways in the road with the grill of my hood facing in an easterly direction. At 2.19 a.m., I radioed a 1088, officer needs assistance to my dispatcher in Warren. He dispatched an officer from Stephen who came out, ascertained the situation as best he could, called for the Stephen ambulance to transport me to Warren Hospital for further tests, x-rays, and observation. At the time the officer arrived, I complained about having very sore eyes. At Warren Hospital, it was diagnosed that I had a mild case of welder's burns to my eyes. My eyes were treated with some salve and adhesive bandages put over and instructed to keep them on for the remainder of the day, or approximately 24 hours. At 11 a.m., Sheriff Dennis Brecky, my employer, picked me up at my residence in Oslo and transported me to an ophthalmologist in Grand Forks, North Dakota. He examined my eyes and said I had some irritation to the inner portions of the eye, which could have been caused by seeing a bright light after dark. That is all I have to add, except to say that my timepiece in the police vehicle and my mechanical wristwatch were both lacking 14 minutes of time to the minute. It should be noted that Johnson's retelling of the story during this interview was no different than what he'd first described in the days following the incident. Here's the actual call Johnson made into dispatch after his car was struck. 407, 400. Go ahead, 407. Uh, what is your condition? I don't know. Something just hit my car. I don't know how to explain it. Strange. Are you, uh, what's your condition? Are you okay? Something attacked my car. I heard the glass breaking and the locks, the brake, brakes locked up. On March 16, 1980, the case was the main topic of conversation at the Manitoba Conference on UFOlogy. At the conference, three guests were in attendance to give a recap of the incident. Deputy Sheriff Val Johnson, 
Officer Everett Doolittle, and Greg Winskowski. Doolittle had been the first officer to reach the scene, and Winskowski conducted the initial interview. The more information that was shared, the more interested people became. The staff at the MCU believed that the Val Johnson incident was one of the most puzzling incidents in the history of ufology. This feeling stemmed from the fact that they considered Johnson to be the perfect witness. After the conference concluded, the ufology team released a special report. The first portion covered the physiological evidence. When Val Johnson was found by Everett Doolittle, he was slumped forward over the steering wheel and in mild shock. A bruise later appeared on Johnson's forehead, presumably caused by impact with the steering wheel. He was dazed and said that everything was in slow motion. He had an intense pain in his eyes, and having done some welding in his career, knew what welder's burn was like and compared his pain to this. It was as if someone had hit me in the face with a 400-pound pillow, he said of the sensation in his head. However, he stated repeatedly that the only pain he experienced was from his eyes. This is extremely interesting in the light of dental examinations he had one week previous and one week after his experience. At the first, he had an extensive series of x-rays taken in preparation for major dental work. His bridge work, including the caps on his front teeth, was intact. At the second examination, the examining dentist found that Johnson's bridge work was broken at the gums, yet no swelling or pain was felt. The second portion of the special report went on to describe the physical evidence from the vehicle. The right member of the left pair of headlights was broken. There was a round dent, approximately one inch in diameter, directly over the master brake cylinder on the hood. This dent appeared as if a hammer had struck the hood at an angle. A photograph taken with a UV filter showed that there was a deposit left on the flat bottom surface of the dent. The windshield of the car had an interesting pattern of breakage, in the shape of a teardrop, but upside down. This was located on the driver's side. Testing of the glass by the Ford Motor Company suggested that there were signs of both inward and outward motion of the windshield. It was noted at the conference that the analytical findings bear some resemblance to those of a shockwave-induced breakage. The roof light, which was affected, had its glass knocked out. The police radio antenna on the center of the roof was bent about five inches up from the roof. The CB antenna on the trunk was bent near its tip. An interesting observation made by the police investigators was that all the damage on the vehicle occurred in a straight path, no wider than 12 inches in diameter. Because of this linear formation, it was suggested that an object had struck at a glancing blow to the car, initially impacting the headlight, rolling over the hood, up the window, and over the roof. However, at the conference, it was realized that this scenario could not account for all the damage in the form it was observed. An object hitting the car at the front would not have the capability to redirect its force downward further up the hood, graze the window, and still have enough force to bend the antennas. The antennas are spring-loaded, so anything bending them would have to have been traveling extremely fast to create the shape they are in now. Near the end of the conference, Johnson was asked to sum up what he believed happened to him. He told the people in attendance that he believed he'd seen something 
he wasn't supposed to see. When pressed further, he explained that maybe he'd stumbled upon somebody doing something that wasn't meant to be observed. They'd spotted him and neutralized his powers of observation. Val Johnson turned down an offer from the National Enquirer to submit to repressive hypnosis. They were offering a good deal of money for exclusive rights to the results of the hypnotherapy. The police department ended the investigation, unable to come up with any reasonable conclusions. When asked if the Air Force, CIA, or FBI had approached the department, their answer was no. After the conference, Johnson appeared in a news segment with a Channel 5 Eyewitness News reporter. Here's some of the audio, courtesy of KSTP-TV and MNOpedia.org. It was 1.40 a.m. Deputy Sheriff Val Johnson was on patrol in rural Marshall County when suddenly he saw a bright light a few feet above ground level, two miles down the road. I traveled about a mile and the light seemed to uh, intercept me, so to speak. Came, uh, came right upon me. It was painful. The, the light was extremely brilliant and painful. I closed my eyes and I heard the sound of breaking glass and that's the last I remember. Whatever it was came extremely fast. He didn't have time to be scared. He doesn't know what it was. I have no idea. It's truly unexplainable to me or uh, un unknown to me. Johnson was unconscious for 40 minutes before he radioed for help and was taken to the hospital. A doctor and later an eye specialist confirmed that Johnson had suffered mild welder or flash burns to his eyes. Even stranger, both Johnson's wristwatch and the electric clock in his patrol car had mysteriously stopped for 14 minutes. An investigator from the Center for UFO Studies in Evanston, Illinois, flew in to examine the damaged patrol car. There was no evidence of radioactivity, and neither the investigator nor the sheriff can figure how the two spring-mounted antennas became bent at almost 90-degree angles. At the scene of the accident, skid marks show Deputy Johnson coasted for 800 feet after impact before applying the brakes. He then went on Good Morning America in September before growing tired of the interviews. The light was coming at me. It was extremely bright. The inside of the car lit up. I can remember that. And uh, it was a very dazzling, brilliant occurrence. Something did strike my vehicle. Uh, something didn't want me there, apparently, or it was, you know, I, I can't put a judgment on it. Uh, I really don't know how to classify it. I, don't, I can't classify it as an attack. He and his wife, Roseanne, felt that the attention was causing their family, which included numerous small children, anxiety. They just wanted to move on. This is Deputy Val Johnson and his wife, Roseanne, everybody. Now, since that incredible experience that has shocked us all, have you had any other experiences, any, any other close encounters? No, sir, no. Had you had any before this? No, no, this is the uh, first one. Well, how has it changed your life? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, brought our family unit, unit closer together. Uh, we... Because it scared everybody so much, you mean? Well, there was a lot of people confused about it and a lot of uh, unusual stories that came out about it. Uh, but uh, it's uh, brought us closer together as a family unit. Was it a religious experience for you? Many times the, these events are, are a religious uh, experience. Upon reflection afterwards, it's been about six months now, upon reflection, uh, we've kind of come to the uh, conclusion that uh, 
perhaps the Creator has made other things that we can't readily see or readily identify, and perhaps this is one of the things we encountered out in the road. Certainly a humbling experience. Thank you, Roseanne and Val, for sharing your feelings about your experience with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Johnson stayed on as a deputy for a bit before taking a job as chief of police in neighboring Oslo, Minnesota. In 1982, he was hired to create a police department in another small Minnesota town before losing his job less than a year later over a funding dispute. From there, he took a job as a security guard in a Twin Cities mall before working for the 3M company in customer service. Eventually, people quit coming by his home, and his phone finally stopped ringing. In a 2015 article from Minnesota Public Radio, a writer was able to track Johnson down in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. He was 71 at the time and was a great-grandfather. According to the limited stalking I've done of the man online, it would appear that he and his wife are alive and well in Eau Claire. He'd be 79 now. In the NPR interview, he's quoted as saying, It's unexplainable, and will remain so. I'm happy with my mental stability. He's clearly moved on, but UFO enthusiasts cannot. The case is often brought up in chat rooms and is still highlighted on various mystery shows. An interesting side note is that when asked about any after-effects, like strange dreams or men in black stopping by, he admitted to frequently seeing the words, I am committed, in his mind, with no rhyme or reason. The three words just hit him at all hours of the day, like a song or a slogan he couldn't stop thinking about. Most skeptics believe that Val Johnson was hit by ball lightning and is lucky to be alive. True believers will tell you that ball lightning doesn't fit with the damage done to the vehicle and the personal injuries that Johnson sustained. What do you think? Was it a warning shot from a UFO? A secret government experiment? A very well-done hoax? Though the case has stayed on the radar of ufologists and is frequently revisited, everyone is in agreement that something strange happened that night. The case has been closed for 40-plus years in the eyes of the law, but there are folks who still want answers. Similar events have played out in the years since, but none with the evidence or credibility of the Val Johnson incident. Johnson doesn't mind that people still want answers or are still coming up with theories. He just wants you to leave him and his family out of it. I've put together a bunch of great images and information on the Val Johnson incident, which I will post to Curator135.com. Thank you to all the patrons who are supporting the show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And don't forget about all the great merchandise available at the shop. I'll have some new designs coming soon. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. It really helps. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.